0: Let's turn now to the book of Ephesians, and we'll read from uh, the first chapter. We'll read the whole first chapter. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory? Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. Who fills all in all. We turn now to Article 16 of the Belgic Confession, the Doctrine of Election. We believe that all Adam's descendants having thus fallen into perdition and ruin by the sin of the first man, God showed himself to be as he is, merciful and just. He is merciful in withdrawing and saving from this perdition those whom he, in his eternal and unchangeable counsel, has elected and chosen in Jesus Christ our Lord by his pure goodness, without any consideration of their works. He is just in leaving the others in their ruin and fall, into which they plunge themselves. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is an important uh, progression from one article to the next in the Belgic Confession, and we uh, need to see that, uh, particularly in connection with Article 16, uh, the Doctrine of Election, uh, with what has gone before, as we have considered the reality of man's fall into sin and the terrible consequences of that in terms of his guilt and uh, his corruption, his inability to do anything to save himself. And the opening sentence of Article 16 uh, makes clear that it's in view of uh, man's misery that we consider uh, the doctrine of election. It's in view of man's sin and misery that uh, the necessity of election is obvious. If anyone is to be saved, it's not by man's doing man is dead in trespasses and sin his will has been uh, completely corrupted along with every aspect of of his humanity and it's only god's saving initiative only god's action explains how any could anyone could be delivered from such a terrible uh, plight and likewise the fact that not all are delivered uh, proves that there is a distinguishing exercise of God's saving grace and power. So there is an inseparable connection between uh, total depravity and unconditional election, to uh, use those familiar terms often associated with the, the canons of Dort or the doctrines of grace, as they're sometimes called, or the five points of Calvinism, as they're sometimes referred to. These things are inseparably joined together. And uh, that that also is obvious when you consider that often the problems or objections that are raised to the doctrine of election betray a failure to grasp or to hold to the biblical view of man's uh, depravity. It's a failure to grasp uh, the seriousness of the power of sin and guilt as it holds people absolutely in captive to its dominion. So the talk of, of people being saved by their choice fails to recognize the consequences of sin over the whole nature that has been vitiated by the reality of sin. And that includes the freedom of the will, as well as other aspects of our being. And when any would say that, well, it's not fair that God should uh, save some and not others, or it's not fair that God should judge the whole human race as guilty, that is a failure to take seriously what the Word of God teaches concerning the sin of Adam and its consequences for the whole human race and to humbly bow before what the Word of God teaches without objection, without quarrel. Now, this starting point concerning the depths of man's depravity puts our confession of election also in its proper biblical light. And that is, it's not presented as some perplexing or some fearful or even some controversial uh, doctrine. But we confess God's election as good news. It's a confession of the grace that makes a difference. It's a confession about God's initiative and God's working that accounts for our deliverance from the misery into which we have plunged ourselves by sin. That's certainly how the doctrine of election is uh, proclaimed in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1. In the form of doxology, in the form of, of praise. We heard the summons in Psalm 35 to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. And the psalmist distinguishes uh, different uh, groups among the people of God that are to extol Him and bless Him uh, for His grace. And so, Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and we'll consider the riches of that, just as, and then he cites the, the source, the fountainhead, of all these blessings, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's how God's election is taught in Scripture, as a source of wonder and praise to a God of grace and mercy. God's people are chosen by God in Christ. That, in summary, in a nutshell, if you will, presents uh, the doctrine of eternal election that we're looking at this evening. And we want to begin by uh, considering election as that is the display of God's mercy. That's how it's presented. As a revelation of God. As a revelation of who God is, but it highlights his mercy. But even that starting point is important. Uh, we are to see election indeed as uh, about the self-revelation of God. In the book of Romans, uh, you know the basic structure of the book, I trust, it begins with the reality of uh, the necessity of the gospel because of the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men, and it goes on to describe the depths of human sin and misery, leaving all people without excuse before him, whether they're uh, the the Gentile nations who who didn't even have the word of God and are and are confronted with God's greatness in creation, or those who had the word of God. The fact is that there is none righteous, no, not one. All are are shut up, enclosed by the reality of the depths of human sin and misery, and it's in view of that terrible condition that the wonder of the gospel is proclaimed. God's provision for sinners, and then the riches of the gospel are are expounded in this book and Paul also goes on to address uh knotty uh, questions that arise with respect to God's plan and purpose for Israel, and he makes clear that they are not all Israel who are uh, of Israel, and he expounds on the the depths of God's wisdom. It's like he surveys what has been uh, uh explained in the foregoing chapters and then it brought, draws him to a conclusion towards the end of chapter 11 where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. The doctrine of election is about God's glory. That's of supreme importance. And uh, his glory is defined by God, not by us and that means we have to approach this subject with this this humble and yet joyful recognition that god is greatly magnified and glorified by this and that that uh just cuts through the the reasonings of proud minds and it means hearts that are teachable and receptive to whatever god says about this Isn't that the way the Lord Jesus Christ himself teaches us to extol the sovereignty of God? In Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus had just confronted the unbelief of Chorazin and Bethsaida, places where his wonderful works had been done, and yet they rejected the Christ in unbelief. Then we read in verse 25, At that time... Even as he had pronounced judgment upon such unbelief, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. God works all things after the counsel of his will, and the doctrine of election is according to the good pleasure of God. And the Lord Jesus leads us also in uh, bowing before him uh, with thanksgiving and worship for his sovereignty. The sovereignty of his judgment, indeed, against the unbelieving wicked. And his grace in revealing the wonders of his mercy to babes. Election is supremely a revelation of God, and it's presented in um, the scripture here. He will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. It's presented as a revelation particular of God's mercy. It pertains to that which is most needful for us, mercy, and that which is most delightful to God, because he is a God who delights in mercy. He's not, he's not simply merciful. But he delights in mercy. God looks with pity and loving kindness on miserable people, and he chooses to rescue them and to save them. And this mercy has has various wonderful features that will that we'll note from this article and from our scripture reference. For one thing, it teaches that this election, which we confess here in Article 16, is a an election of persons of specific. Persons, and it is election of persons unto uh, salvation, uh, and and we say that in view of the fact that there are different kinds of elections that uh, we could speak of according to 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 scripture. God chose Israel to be His special people, and uh, we sang or we read from Psalm uh, one thirty five. That this is a cause for praise and thanksgiving to God, because he chose Jacob, he chose Israel, and often in the in the Bible, uh, Israel is addressed as God's chosen people whom He had delivered from Egypt, whom he brought into the wilderness, for whose sake he destroyed these kings. And uh, who brought them into the land of Canaan. And they're addressed in such a way as to impress upon everyone the wonder of God's goodness and mercy in separating them and delivering them from bondage so that they might put their trust in God, so that they might love Him and serve Him as His people. And so there is this election of Israel that is often spoken of without further distinction. And yet we know And it's taught even in the Old Testament that they are not all Israel who are of Israel in the sense that everyone truly responded to this wondrous grace of God in true faith and love. And so there is that kind of general election of God. We also know from Scripture, and that's also acknowledged in the the canons of Dort, that God shows his own sovereignty in terms of those to whom the gospel is sent. Not everyone throughout history has heard the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. Not everyone yet to this day has heard the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. And to be so privileged as to hear of the way of life, to hear of the manifestation of God's love in Jesus Christ is presented in God's Word as that which obligates everyone who hears to heed God's command, who commands all men everywhere to repent and to believe in the Son. This is the will of God, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And there are those rich, unlimited proclamations of the saving mercy and grace and love of God in the Gospel. That indeed obligates everyone to hear and believe that God indeed has sent his son into the world such that to deny that is in effect to call God a liar. But God's sovereignty also is manifested in terms of who hears. We could also speak of God's choice of individuals. God chose certain uh, to be uh to be kings. In fact, among them was Saul. God chose those, uh, who would, uh, be apostles. The Lord Jesus chose twelve. And we know one of them betrayed him. But we're not really talking about those kinds of choices in Article 16. This, there's a, there's a, a connection indeed between, uh, God's general choice in terms of those to whom he gives his word and those to whom he enters into even a relationship, a covenantal relationship, and the way in which he saves his elect, but they're not treated as one and the same thing, because God's election, as we confess here, is an election of persons unto salvation that involves a distinction. It's a distinction that the apostle Paul uh, makes in um Romans chapter nine, for example, even a distinction among the sons of Isaac and Rebekah, as well as the the sons of Abraham and Sarah. there were twins in Rebecca's womb. And when Rebekah had also conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said, To her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. There is a distinction that God made, even between these boys. Not on the basis of one being uh, better than the other, but of pure grace. God chose to confer saving mercy upon the one and not the other. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, Paul goes on. On uh, to say in this, this very chapter. So we're talking about the election of persons. Another passage, we could go to numerous passages, uh, to, uh, to show that another passage is in first, P- uh, Peter, where, uh, God's people are exhorted, uh, to add to their faith, uh, virtue, knowledge, uh, brotherly love, kindness, self-control, and, uh, they are assured that in doing these things, they shall never stumble, but an abundant entrance will be given to them. And then he wraps it up by saying, Therefore, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. He's calling upon all these these Christians to take their calling to faith and obedience seriously, to live out the Christian life with the promise that in so doing, they will abound in the assurance of their salvation. right? The assurance of salvation and the assurance of election are really one and the same thing. But that involves the fact that that God's election is an election of persons. And we can be assured and confident in our election as believers. Because God's election indeed is of individuals. Secondly, it is an eternal election. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. That means in eternity. This this uh biblical teaching that just blows our mind, if you think about it. Because it's not as if, well, eternity is everything before the creation of the world. No, it's an altogether different category. It's something that we can't hardly conceive of. God is the only eternal one. He is the alpha, the beginning, and the end. But he never had a beginning. He is the one who reveals himself as I am, undergoing no change, never coming up with new ideas, never growing in wisdom, never growing or changing in any way. And God chose us in Christ, in that realm of his own eternal existence. The election is not plan B. It's not as if God really wanted to save everybody, but then he, he ran into the fact of a persistent kind of uh, stubborn willfulness and unbelief. And so, uh, well, then he resorted to a plan to choose somebody uh, or some people, but that also kind of depended on uh, their willingness to be saved. Any effort that treats of election in any other way than God's eternal choice just runs uh right into the Bible and what it says about election. Election is not God's response to faith or obedience as if it depends in any way on what man does. And in that sense, it is unconditional. Unconditional uh election. The way our Confession says it is that it is without any consideration of their works. And that was obviously made clear in the case of Esau and Jacob. But what it means, to put it in practical terms, is that there is no kind of goodness that draws God's election, nor is there any kind of badness that hinders God's election. Because it's not based on those things whatsoever. Rather, it is unconditional, and it is powerful to accomplish God's purpose, to accomplish complete salvation. It's never frustrated. Again, our confession speaks of election as that whereby God withdraws and saves uh, from that perdition which was described in the previous articles. I give to them eternal life, Jesus said, of those whom the Father had given him. And they shall never perish. Who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ? And then a a long list of of possible imaginary things that could accomplish such are enumerated. But uh, it is denied that there is anything whatsoever in heaven or on earth, past or present, that could separate us from the love of God. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Their salvation is secure in Christ. It's his unchangeable purpose. That the purpose of God according to election might stand. We read there from Romans 9. And you see, brothers and sisters, that, that this is the good news of election. The revelation of God's mercy. Mercy towards persons. Mercy that is effective to actually secure their eternal salvation. Mercy that's not conditioned upon anything that they have that distinguishes them from others, but only by grace. Mercy that is eternal and unchangeable. And that's how God wants us to think and believe in election and glorify him for it. And now we're going to consider how to do that. And that concerns election and the centrality of Christ. We've already referred to it numerous times in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, article 16 uh, speaks of it, where it speaks of those as elected and chosen in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not to just skip over those words as if, well, that's uh, that's appropriate kind of religious talk. We've got to put Jesus in there somewhere. No, this is essential to our understanding of God's election. For one thing election is unto salvation and salvation is by a savior. Uh, we already considered that that election is unconditional as to any kind of human merit as to anything that would distinguish one from another as the basis for God's choice. But that in itself doesn't answer the question how can it be that guilty hell deserving sinners could be admitted Back into fellowship with a holy and just God. And we say, by the mercy of God. But we have to say more. And we have to say that, that mercy finds a way. God in His infinite wisdom has devised that way. And this leads us to consider what is sometimes called that, uh, that covenant of redemption, that that covenant among the persons of the Trinity in eternity, whereby this divine predestination would be worked out in time. And it includes the willingness of the Son to take upon himself this saving work as our mediator. It's as if the Lord Jesus Christ uh, steps forward. We can only use human analogies as if the Lord Jesus Christ steps forward and says, I will undertake everything that is necessary to secure the eternal redemption of all those whom you have given me. I'll take upon myself that body which is prepared for me. A human body capable of hunger and thirst, capable of the anguish Of experiencing crucifixion. Capable of shedding my blood. Capable of bearing the judgment of sinners. Human body with a reasonable soul. A soul that's capable of the kind of anguish. Of experiencing the wrath and judgment of God against sin. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, took upon himself. Willingly what was necessary in order to secure the actual salvation that God had predestined for us. So in that sense, we might say, well, yes, our election is unconditional with respect to human merit, but the actual carrying out of God's saving purpose was not unconditional. It depended upon the satisfaction of God's holy justice and honoring his own righteousness. And that is accomplished only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the result of that, we hear it in in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved, in Jesus Christ. Election, we read in verse uh, 3, is unto every spiritual blessing. And those blessings are enumerated there. The forgiveness of sins. Redemption through Christ's blood the grace of adoption that we who by nature are children of wrath should be sons of God his own children and as such we should possess an eternal inheritance one that does not fade away incorruptible that we should be sealed by the spirit himself who is given to us as a guarantee of our complete redemption and on and on and on it goes, all in Christ Jesus, that ultimately we would be brought into the very presence of God without blemish. In fact, from the outset, Paul joins these things together. We are chosen in him before the foundation of the world, as if in eternity past, if we could speak in such a way all the way to the everlasting future in which we will be holy and without blame before him and everything in between all secured in Christ only in Christ that's why uh, Calvin said that that Christ is the mirror in which we must contemplate our election and here we may do it with safety and what he means by that is as we contemplate our election in Christ we are spared from getting lost in naughty Questions, but rather we may rejoice in amazing grace. We might also put it this way, that election is most lovely as seen in Christ, most captivating, most delightful, most inspiring. That's what we hear in Ephesians 1. God is praised and blessed for this grace. And you see, brothers and sisters, if, if we see that, Then, then we see that, that opposition to the doctrine of election is really most grievous. And it is most dishonoring to God. And it's most dishonoring to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we cannot despise election. In other words, we can't, we can't rage against it. You know, that's a way of despising something. Oh, I despise it. There's another way of despising something. That's you just dismiss it. You treat it lightly. It's unimportant. You cannot despise the doctrine of election without despising the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we could go through the Gospel, and particularly the Gospel of John, and hear how he again and again defines his whole saving mission in these terms. His very name, Jesus, is because he will save his people from their sin. In his high priestly prayer, before he returns to the Father, he speaks of having finished the work that was given him to do. He speaks of having been given authority over all flesh that he might give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Jesus' mission was to secure the eternal redemption of God's elect. One cannot judge election as harsh and forbidding without thinking Christ is harsh and forbidding in fact we might say that no one no one has a right no one has a right to say uh anything or to think any kind of thoughts about election without thinking much of Jesus Christ maybe you've heard the the expression i think it was pastoral advice that uh, i i'm i'm unsure i think i know someone who i could ask but i believe it was owen i might be corrected but he gave uh, this pastoral advice to one who was distraught by the reality of his awareness of his remaining sin and his unworthiness and his guilt. <laughs> and the counsel that that he received is that for for every look into yourself, into your own heart, take ten looks at Christ. And I think we could say the same thing about the doctrine of election. For every, every thought, every look, every word about election, take ten, uh, looks, uh, ten thoughts and words of our Lord Jesus Christ, because we may never th- think properly and biblically of our election apart from Jesus Christ. <laughs> we'll say more about that, but we want to, uh, move thirdly to uh, the doctrine of election and God's justice. Because our confession also does speak of that. Election is a manifestation of God. And it's a manifestation of his mercy. But it's also a manifestation of his justice. He is just in leaving the others in their ruin and fall, into which they plunged themselves. That's all it says about, about uh what is often referred to as the doctrine of reprobation. It's not referred to in that way. It, uh, that that language is used in uh the the canons of Dort. Uh, reprobation is like the counterpart uh to election. Not exactly so, but uh you might say that even um logically, and it is a sound logical deduction, because if God elected persons unto salvation, the corollary to that, the inescapable implication is that God did not elect all persons unto salvation or all persons would be saved. And so there is a passing by in the activity of God's predestinating grace. But it's not simply a logical deduction. It's something that's taught in scripture. Even in Romans chapter 7, when Israel is described as those who have uh, sought righteousness, but by the law uh, they did not obtain uh, what it seeks, but the elect have atta- obtained it, and then it says, and the rest were blinded in the book of jude in in the book of first Peter two verse eight, there are district descriptions of of ungodly uh people who oppose uh the faith, and then there is reference to the fact that to such things they had been appointed. That's a solemn statement. It detracts nothing from the reality of their sin and guilt. But there are such passages in Scripture. And if we're going to deal humbly and honestly with the Word of God, we dare not ignore them. The Canons of Dort does uh, confess this, this reprobation as a decision of God. In Article 15, it says that some have not been chosen or have been passed by by God Passed by in God's eternal election, those that is concerning whom God, on the basis of his entirely free, most just, irreproachable, and unchangeable good pleasure, made the following decision, to leave them in the common misery into which by their own fault they have plunged themselves, not to grant them saving faith and the grace of conversion, but finally to condemn and eternally punish them having been left in their own ways and under his just judgment, not only for their unbelief, but also for all their other sins in order to display his justice. Right There we see uh, an agreement with that emphasis of uh, Article 16. And this is the decision of reprobation, which does not at all make God, the author of sin, a blasphemous thought, it says, but rather sin's fearful, irreproachable, just judge and avenger, and we need to know even in this article there in the Canons of Dork, that uh, reprobation is presented repeatedly as a revelation of God's justice, not his bare sovereignty. Yes, God is sovereign, but reprobation is always spoken of in connection with God's justice also. And what that means also for to speak practically is that the non-elect or the reprobate are never viewed in Scripture nor ought they ever to be viewed in our own thinking as the victims of God's sovereignty. There are certain conclusions that we dare not draw, that we may not draw, however logical they might appear to our minds because the Bible forbids such ways of thinking. Rather they are viewed in scripture as receiving justice. Yes, this doctrine does require of us reverence and humility. And that means that we want to humbly receive as much as the word of God teaches. And we don't want to go beyond that. And that means that we have to restrain ourselves from asking the wrong kinds of questions or drawing the wrong kinds of conclusions. There are a couple wrong kind of conclusions that we might draw, and one of them is also addressed in the Canons of Dort. And a wrong conclusion would be to uh, succumb to a kind of undue alarm, to hear of the doctrine of reprobation and be paralyzed by it, to be uh, terrified by it, to be made despairing by it. In Article uh, 16 of, of the First Head of Doctrine, it says this, Those who do not yet actively experience within themselves a living faith in Christ, or an assured confidence of heart, peace of conscience, a zeal for childlike obedience, and a glorying in God through Christ. Right? That, that describes those who lack assurance, who feel that they're cold, who are very much aware of their sin, and they don't feel that kind of childlike uh, zeal for obedience. And they, they, they find it hard just to join in with songs of praise and thanksgiving for God's election because they're filled with doubts and fears that they may not be elect. But they're further described as those who nevertheless use the means by which God has promised to work these things in us. Such people ought not to be alarmed at the mention of reprobation, nor to count themselves among the reprobate. Rather, they ought to continue diligently in the use of the means. That, In other words, they ought to stay under the word. They ought to attend the worship of God. They ought to read their Bible. They ought to continue to pray for more grace, for light, for help, for mercy, to desire fervently a time of more abundant grace and to wait for it in reverence and humility, persevering in the use of the means of grace, calling upon God. There's another conclusion that might seem to be logical, but is really quite abhorrent in view of the teaching of Scripture, in view of the doctrine of reprobation. And that is any conclusion that would excuse sin and unbelief, or any way of thinking about reprobation that would deny one's responsibility or the responsibility of others for their sin and their unbelief. Those who remain lost under the gospel perish by their own fault, full stop. And we must never deviate from that solemn conviction because that is what the Bible teaches. One passage that that makes that abundantly clear In Acts chapter 13, where Paul had preached to the Jews and met with the opposition and unbelief, it says Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, right? Because Jesus said, go preach the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And they preached the gospel to the Jews. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentile. Isn't that a profound statement? You reject it. And that rejection involves a kind of self-condemnation. In effect, though they're not saying it by words, they're saying it by their unbelief that they are unworthy. They judge themselves unworthy. They choose condemnation for their sins rather than believing in the message of eternal life. In effect, they say, we don't believe in this Jesus. We don't think there's anything impressive about him. We reject the idea that he fulfilled the scriptures. Why? Because they had such good reasons for doing so? No, because of the hardness and unbelief of their hearts. And in doing so, they judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. And that is an apt description of all those who turn aside from the message of life in Jesus Christ, who re- who resist those overtures of grace, who resist uh, those commandments to believe, who resist those invitations to come to Christ, who resist the display of the glory of the Savior. It's been said that if the message of the gospel, in fact, were not true, everyone who hears of it and discovers that it's just a fable, they should just sit down and cry their eyes out. That's such a wonderful message that presents such a great deliverance from sin and misery and proclaims eternal life and everlasting hope and the restoration and renewal of our lives. To discover that that's not true. That ought to be the most heartbreaking discovery imaginable. But people in their unbelief and hatred for God, they reject it. And it's their fault. On the other hand, those who believe and are saved, they learn to give all the glory to God in Christ. In that same chapter, we read in verse 48, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And then it says, And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Do you believe this evening? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior that God promised from the beginning, that he sent according to Scripture, that fulfilled his word, that accomplished redemption, who is the Son of God, who is the Savior, in whom you have eternal life. you believe that? Well, then you've been appointed to eternal life. That's the only explanation. It's not of yourself. And so, properly understood, faith in Jesus Christ is itself a solid ground for the assurance of our election. Make your calling and election sure. Has God called you to Christ? Have you, have you heard the gospel and responded in faith? Well, you continue in that faith, and uh, you'll grow into assurance. I, I, I believe that assurance uh, uh, treated biblically is not simply uh, a simple matter of having it or not. I think it's a growing thing. I think that's ordinarily the experience of God's children that's why we need the sacraments for one thing we need to grow in the assurance of our salvation always looking to Christ and as we grow in assurance and as we grow in faith we'll grow in uh extolling God for his electing do you ever do you ever uh, think to yourself why me do you ever does it ever grip you personally maybe privately maybe on your bed at night and you you realize that, that you're a Christian. That you do believe in the Savior. That you have thoughts about yourself. You have thoughts about God. You have thoughts about the future that most people in the world don't have. Why you? Why do you have comfort and peace? Why me? Well, that ought to lead us to just humbly give thanks to God. Praise Him that He has revealed His Son to us and in us. And rejoice in this, this, this amazing, amazing grace and mercy. Amen.